The Next CMO Podcast explores topics that are on the minds of forward-thinking marketing executives, from leadership and strategy to emerging technologies. And we bring these topics to life by interviewing leading experts in their fields. The Next CMO is sponsored by Plana, makers of the world's first AI-based marketing leadership platform, and hosted by me, Peter Mahoney, the founder and CEO of Plana, along with my co-host, Kelsey Kraft. In this episode of the Next CMO Podcast, Kelsey and I have a conversation with John Reedman, the CEO of Moto25, an innovative agency based in the UK with offices in Leeds and in London. John specializes in helping companies insource their marketing instead of relying completely on external agency partners. We talk about the roles that are most important to bring inside your company first, issues and opportunities with insourcing your marketing, and about Bosco, a benchmarking tool that Moto25 created to show you how your marketing stacks up to your competitors. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us on the Next CMO podcast today. I know you're calling in from uh, Yorkshire out in the UK. Would love to learn a little bit more about you and what you do for Moto25. So first of all, thanks for, for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So I set up Modo. So my background has always been in marketing technology and agency services, particularly digital marketing. And I noticed one of our biggest competitors was actually brands and specifically retailers bringing their digital marketing in-house. So I was sort of sat thinking around after we exited our last business and we were going through the earn out and, and everything, I was thinking, well, what are we going to do next? And I thought, well, how can we create a business that enables brands and retailers to actually in-house themselves properly, but at the same time, actually make some money in the process and build a business around that. So Modo 25 enables brands to have a strategy to over time in-house their digital marketing talent, their help them resource, recruit and retain that talent over a period of time. So it's a very different type of services business, but we've been growing a lot. We're just about to launch into the US and lots of brands and and retailers and e-commerce companies seem to really enjoy what we talk about and what we do. I've seen, John, some really interesting evidence and some data presented recently about the fact that more and more brands are looking to insource at least part of their marketing. What do you think is driving that? I think there's, so I was involved in email marketing years and years ago, before even e-commerce. And it was a bit like, well, we've got to get an agency and a platform. We've got to do this. And it was a bit like voodoo. And then I got into uh, SEO and PPC many years ago. And that was a bit like black magic. And, and I think people over time have started to realize, well, A, are we overpaying the agency? Where is the transparency? particularly around things like programmatic or around SEO. And people have wanted to understand and they're thinking, well, hang on, I'm paying an agency an overrated price. The performance may or may not be good. I'm struggling with trust. I'm struggling with transparency. I'm finding it hard to explain. If I, they can't explain it to me, how can I explain it to my management and leadership team? So I, I think the drive is because people want to take control. 
They want to take ownership and they want to demonstrate and have access to the sort of metrics themselves. So I suppose transparency and control. And I also think there's a historical bias. And what I mean by that is some agencies in particular are biased in two ways. One way based on the relationships they've got with the ad networks or the media networks, maybe based on previous kickbacks or commission structures or commercials, but also they've got a knowledge bias. And what I mean by that is if you go to them and say, oh, well, where should we spend our money or where should we invest our time? They may only recommend what they know, but there may be other skills and other opportunities for your business or other marketing channels that they're not skilled in, that they're not going to recommend. So what we've been trying to do is have a sort of completely client-focused, platform-agnostic view to helping people in-house and take control of their digital marketing over time. So it's interesting that you brought up the idea of of bias because you definitely see that. And it's the, I've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of approach that that happens. It's And it's natural for everyone. If you study and really understand something in a detailed way, then you're going to find ways to apply your knowledge to solve problems. And that's that's okay. And I don't think it's nefarious in any way from people's perspective, but that's just how human nature works. But you also have internal bias. So if you develop those skills internally, you're going to have your own internal view. So how, how do you avoid building up too much internal bias for your own because yeah. there's always this balance right there's yeah, so this is this is this was so everybody's saying well once you've in-house these people aren't you going to make yourselves redundant and where's the value and what do you do so we offer this service and some of it's people-based well most of it's people-based and there's an element of software in there as well where we index and benchmark people against their competitors a bit like the former hitwise used to do and we've got a sort of new digital marketing index tool to keep to sort of the people, a lot of people integrate that into other different platforms and dashboards and things. So, but what, what we, what we find there is we, we run and sit in the background to also help them with like a quarterly strategy, or we will help them with a review, or we will say, this is what we're seeing across the rest of your industry. So you get this sort of light touch agency exposure and experience without having to pay the heavy monthly retainers and also the big feature a lot of people have about in housing is well what happens if they leave what happens if they go on maternity or what happens if they go on holiday because some of these companies aren't the big goliaths of the world so the targets for instance who've got hundreds of marketers they might be one two uh, person operation so uh, they're worried about what if my my resource leaves or is off. So we provide a sort of help desk and support service where you can call in and we can jump in, help you set take over for a period of time. Or even just if someone's got a question, you could have a set amount of our guys' time uh, where you don't have to Google, you don't have to watch a video, you can just speak to an expert and they can give you help and advice. Normally, if we've helped them already in-house, we understand the accounts, we understand the product, we understand the setup. We probably set it up to our best practice so we can very quickly dive in their spot opportunities and help them. So it's a bit like an insurance policy for in-housing to give people that sort of reassurance. It's really interesting because it seems like there's this, this bridge that you're trying to help people make. I assume that if you're a, a target of the world, if you're a big giant, brand marketer as an example, and you have lots of internal skills, you've developed that capability over time. And it's 
it's just a choice you make at some point about which pieces you insource versus outsource. But as you get a little bit smaller and down down that scale, then you probably wouldn't have been able to insource in the past and maintain a level of quality, I suspect. Because one of the advantages, obviously, of bringing in a, a specialist agency is they're a specialist agency and they have some deep skills in a certain area. So it sounds like what you're doing is helping people maybe insource slightly earlier than they could have before with some insurance in place so that if if there's if there's turnover like you said if someone needs to needs to take a holiday every once in a while you can accommodate that yeah no absolutely and it almost means they could have a general marketer or digital marketing person who's got a broad understanding of seo ppc and affiliates or whatever but if they really need that deep technical understanding they can just pick up the phone to us but they're not paying that sort of agency rates and because we would have set them up in a in a best practice way and probably trained their team and maybe even recruited them so that's the other thing we've been doing a lot of recently which has been fascinating because we come from a digital marketing and technology background we're not recruiters but brands and businesses seem to really like that because we can validate whether or not these people actually know what they're talking. One of the biggest problems people are finding now with the sort of shortage of digital marketing talent for brands is they might recruit a head of SEO or a head of paid search, and it takes them three to six months to realize actually they're not quite as good as they said they were. And that opportunity cost is huge. So the recruitment side of our business has really been booming. And then once you place the person in there, the opportunity to build and grow that relationship to an agency support and everything else just sort of flows from there. And we, we seem to be, because of our transparent approach, there's a huge amount of trust, which I think in the past, people probably haven't had the most trust for their agency. They've always been worried about, well, I get an invoice, I get a report and I get this, and then I get a quarterly review where it's not quite transparent of what is actually going on. So we're trying to sort of demystify all that, really. If you had to stack rank roles, what would be the first thing that you insourced and what would be the last thing that you insourced? That's a very good question, Peter. It really depends on the size of business, but I would say if it's a scaling up e-commerce type business, they really need somebody who really understands paid media and analytics and their metrics. So somebody who really understands the right levers to pull in order to drive performance and why. Because we often see companies that have scaled up and become successful, but then when they they then don't understand the value of which media at which time to really take growth to the next level. So I would say somebody who really a broad e-commerce specialist, but with a with a, a focus on the sort of performance media and the analytics side of it is a, is a must, so that they can then start taking control of their own budgets and actually understanding the ROI and the return on ad spend, et cetera. So I want to hop in here because I'm a little curious for my own personal reasons. I'm one and a half to two marketers, like, you know, here at Plan On. How do you go through defining and figuring out, you know, that agency process of whether or not they're pulling their weight and they're doing what, you know, they said that they should do? What's kind of your process of identifying and then what do you do after? 
So that, that's so. What we tend to do is we spend a sort of like a deep dive with the with the brand or with with the with the company to understand what are their goals and objectives and what are they actually trying to achieve through their digital marketing, and then we analyze that and then through and I suppose it depends on how aware the existing agencies are about the ambition to move in house. Okay, so we've had some really interesting examples where we've worked hand in hand with the agency, we've transferred accounts over, we've worked on it all together, and it's been fine. We've had other ones where everybody was really upset and it was really nervous. So depending on the levels of communication and relationship between the brand and the agency, uh, but we would then do a level of audit, a level of stra- and then from the back of the audit of all the work that has been going on, versus the the desired outcomes and strategy of the brand, we would then put together our recommendations. And within that is also a skills assessment of the team. So we would assess, right, well, have you got the right people in the right places? What does the perfect team look like? Because one of the biggest things we've seen with a lot of brands who want to sort of accelerate their business and move in houses, maybe marketing owns the budget, but e-commerce own the skill set and the people spending the budget. But marketing wants to spend the budget on something different to what e-commerce wants to spend. So we've got to make sure everybody's aligned around the numbers and around the targets and the plans. So it's it's a combination of strategy and people is where we'd start and assessing the existing work that's been going on with agencies and, and people. So does that answer the question? Is that absolutely yeah? It definitely it brings in the operational marketing of you know that your team and, and what you're working with. So yeah. One of the things that we've been touching on a little bit is the idea of benchmarking your own capabilities. And I, I, you guys have some experience in that area, obviously, and, and maybe you can share a little bit about your, your thoughts and your approach around how you might benchmark your digital marketing capabilities. So, well, so we've got a thing called the Bosco Index. So I used to get really frustrated where people get obsessed about their competitors, and they're like, well, and then they're saying, well, they're ranking number one for this. And then you have, and they're, they're doing this, or the, how much are they spending? And there's so many different metrics, right? So you could lose days of your life in in SEMrush. You could lose days of your life in Google Analytics. And we used to, there used to be a tool called Hitwise, and Hitwise would give you a one metric, And it would tell you the direction, like almost like a North Star of where are we going? How do we rank against our closest peers? And and, and Hitwise is no longer. And when we're trying to do this sort of process to help people in-house, we also need to benchmark them against their peers. And then we need to analyze their peers and go, well, how do you stack up against your competitors? So what we've done is we've built a tool that has over 16 different data inputs and points, as well as looking at your overall visibility, the visibility versus demand in the market, and that's both on a paid, organic, social, and everything. And then we, we've devised the Bosco score, which is a score out of a 1,000, which you would then get scored every month. Then you track your performance over time. And there may be some legitimate reasons why you're never going to score more than 750, because you may have made a commercial decision you don't want to sell on Amazon. But you're never going to get more than 750 in that scenario because we believe maybe our our system has said, well, there's opportunities and demand and search for your products on Amazon so that you're missing an opportunity. But it gives everybody measured with the same yardstick and it gives the board some data and some information to hold either their team 
or their agency accountable and go, well, why are we going up? Why are we going down? What's going on? What would we have to do to move that up? So that's sort of a, a, a benchmarking tool. And it's free to use to, 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 if you just want to compare yourself to th- two competitors, yourself and three competitors, actually. So you can just go online and, and look at askbosco.io and pl- put in your domain. As it, it tends to work very well for e-commerce companies and brands and retailers because you need to spend a certain amount so we can see the data. But Got it. And we'll... Yeah, and we'll put a link in the in the show notes oh, for right, people yeah, too, right. so they can they can check that out. No, that's that's great. What do you think if if you kind of lean back and look at, over your landscape, and obviously you're pretty specialized in e-commerce marketers. What do you think people are doing well, and what are people doing not so well these? Days? Oh, how long have we got? I th- yeah, we I could talk about this for a long time. I think you can talk what, as much as you want. I can't guarantee what we'll edit. Edit, edit, edit it out. I'll be gone. Shoot, chop. Cutting room floor. Now, I think the main thing people have got good at, which then leads to why things have become poor, I would say people have got good at spending money with Google, right? And people have got good at PPC and performance marketing. But, and it, because it's a, we put a dollar in and we get $10 out and it's a very easy to understand concept. That's then, I believe, led to a reliance on performance marketing and meant that people have, have become too complacent about quality copy, quality creative and quality proposition. And, and what was traditional marketing of like, what are my P's, my all the different price promotion, uh, et cetera. And product in place, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, it's, it's a marketing podcast. I thought people would know. But I think what's happened is people have got so reliant on performance marketing that suddenly when the ROI stops working, people don't go, oh, I, maybe we need to improve our proposition or maybe we need to have better copy or better calls to actions. Or maybe in Facebook, we need to focus a bit more on the creative. So I think... And this sort of is a bit contrary to what I was saying. I think we talked about the first person in house was the analyst die, but actually the people who have got the analytics analyst person and all the numbers right are sort of over reliant on that and not then thinking because we're becoming blind. Every fifth post on Facebook now is an ad, right? So how are you going to stop that scroll? Right. And then if you're in charge of your brand and you're trying to take that in-house now, that becomes quite hard. And there's probably some elements of creative you maybe shouldn't bring in-house. Right? I'm not saying you should bring all, all marketing in-house, but I'd say over the, the, the people are good at their digital performance marketing. That's become an over-reliance, which means they're now poor at their creative and above the line and, and, and doing trying new things. People seem very, very reluctant to try new channels and new things. Uh, and I'd give an example of I'm surprised how long it's taken some of the big bands to get into TikTok. So if we'd have sat here three years, four years ago and said, oh, there's going to be this music-based video streaming platform that's going to come from China and it's going to take over, people would have probably locked me up as a madman. But actually, there's some huge opportunities. There's some very cheap traffic. There's some high-engaged 
consumers, and it's not just eight-year-old girls doing dance moves. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting opportunity for brands. So, John, why do, you, why do you think that is, you know, the fear of, of trying out new channels? Why do you think brands, you know, these big-name brands, when something is clearly trending in the right direction, obviously video being another factor? I think, I think there's, there's twofold. Is the, the agencies don't understand it, so they're not recommending it. I think they've not got onto it quick enough. There's too many white middle-aged men running the businesses and the brands, and they don't really under, probably understand their actual consumer, if we're brutally honest about the whole thing. And I think everybody thought it was going to be a gimmick. So everybody's waiting and waiting and waiting, and then suddenly it's like panic. It's not a gimmick. How do, can we find somebody who knows anything about TikTok to help us? We need TikTok now. And and it's and then it's suddenly they're sponsoring they're sponsoring the World Cup football and they're sponsoring this and they're sponsoring that. It's everywhere. Yeah, we had a, a guest on about a year ago now. Jason yeah, was, was his name. Right. And <laughs> he, he was a, he had a TikTok agency and he was probably 14 years old or something. You know, it was it was amazing. But to your point, John, that it you get someone who's closer to the demographic who really understands it. And and they really can can move much more quickly. And and by the way, it's one of the advantages of keeping some capability to to reach outside the organization and tap into talent. I mean, as you said, you, I mean, you just said creative is a great example where you might want to look externally because you can always come up with. It's hard to come up with really brand new, innovative approaches and ideas if you're within your same four walls all the time and, and bringing something from the outside. And it's this kind of thing, looking at new ideas and new channels is something that's really important. So I that's the, go ahead. No, sorry, Pete. I, I think the other thing, just to finish off Kelsey's question is people are scared, right? So it's a lot, there's a lot of money relying on this now. And especially since the pandemic, suddenly e-commerce isn't 10% or 5% of the business. It's 90% because all our shops are closed. Right. So everybody's like, well, we don't want to break the Google machine or the Facebook machine. So it's sort of working. Why fiddle with it? And I think what people need to look at is either testing budgets or actually do some forecasting and go, well, what could we get back from these new platforms? But so I think people are nervous and scared of the unknown. And because of the size of the money now, people are spending millions on, on their digital marketing. They want to know because it's very easy to go in Google and go, right, I spend this and I get this back. People go, well, what's my RO? It's digital. I want an exact number back. But TikTok's probably a bit more like TV to start with. So that's where the, the disconnect happens. Yeah, and we're big advocates of sort of measuring at the right level. And, and part of the problem is that I think people often are, they're so focused and so used to sort of optimizing within the tactic or subtactic that they're, they're missing the forest for the trees. And they don't understand what the broad campaign theme is doing. And it may be that the brand campaign or the broader campaign that may include influencer marketing, which is harder to directly measure. But in aggregate, you should be able to see how it moves the needle and you should be able to add up what it costs and figure out what the performance is. Yeah, no, I, I, this sort of brings me on to, you're absolutely right. This brings me on to sort of a, a sort of a really interesting 
conversation we have with a lot of brands uh, and retailers and e-commerce businesses is is sort of attribution. So everybody's talking about the A word. Uh, yeah, it's a bit, I sometimes talk about it. it's a bit like teenage sex. Everybody's talking about it, but nobody's doing it. So it's um, it's just one of those things that it's hard oh, that we're going we're, we're going to do an attribution project, or we're going to get some consultants in, and we're going to analyze all of this. But I think the challenge is multiples on all of that. I think the board don't really understand about how attribution could work. And I think this is a big education piece. A lot of digital marketers get the concept that most paths to purchase may have seven plus interactions and which one is the most valuable. And we don't actually know. And I, and I think we need to, as, a, as an industry, educate the wider leadership team to go, well, actually, that click's worth this, this click's worth that, and it's not all on last click. because that last click may have never happened if they didn't see the ad on Facebook or the ad on programmatic or the influencer talking about it on their TikTok. But it's hard, right? Attribution is hard and it's wrong. Right? Yeah. Every single attribution model is wrong. And it's a case of trying to find the least wrong model that fits <laughs> my business. And that's why people tend to give up and go, too hard, I'm just going to look at last click. And then you've, the other thing that muddies the waters, you can press buttons in Google Analytics and just apply their, their generic models, which may be completely wrong for your business because every business is different. Unless you sell one product to exactly the same person all the time using the same channels, you can't really have a, an exit. It's not an exact science. Yeah, it's what's known as false precision. So you get a, an answer down to four decimal points but it's completely fundamentally wrong and makes no sense. And, and it's, a, it's a huge issue. So we, we advocate for the approach that I was just talking about, which is aggregating your, your plan into campaign themes and at least being able to understand how these campaign themes are performing because you can certainly get a lot more accurate if you are, if, if you're looking at in, in aggregate and, and maybe six of those seven interaction points are within a campaign and at least you'll be much closer than you would before versus the alternative. And then ultimately look, looking at what I call romp return on marketing plan, right? What's your entire spend and what's the entire return on the, on your marketing investment. And that's useful to know because what a lot of people do is they'll say, Hey, this keyword generated a 14 X return on investment. What they're not pointing out is that all the other stuff that they've done was in support of that. And they're not yeah. factoring that into their investment at all. And they may be underwater with their spend. I think, the, yeah, you could, you're absolutely right. And I think the other thing people often go is, oh, well, paid search is doing this. We've spent this much money and they might include their agency cost. And then they'll also go on, here's what the output is. And then they'll go, oh, SEO is our best performing channel or this, that, and the other. And they don't take into account they've got 30 content writers and they've got loads of people, PR, this, that, and the other. They don't factor that into a cost. And yeah, so it's that that whole, I agree, having having a solid, total, fully expensed up plan can really help people in-house their business better or, or, or run their marketing better. But it's all the, putting in all those costs. Yeah, huge, huge issue. So if, if you look at the if you look at the e-commerce space overall, so lean back and squint and look at the whole thing, 
there, there's a lot of big things happening in this space right now. And, and I'd love your perspective strategically on on where you think this is all going. What are the important themes to look at for our listeners who are in the e-commerce space or at least e-commerce fans out there? Because if you think about it, you've got, you mentioned there's this huge shift due to the pandemic that's semi-permanent now. So obviously we've changed consumer behavior. They know how to shop now. Retailers are now getting much more capable at handling mixed commerce kind of models and curbside delivery and, and things that integrate digital into their whole experience. You've got the, the significant, uh, significant share and gaining share that that Amazon has that you mentioned. And, and then you've got sort of the up, upcoming and the, the really exciting work that you're seeing out of the Shopify network. How does this all come together? And how, how do you, how do you think, how do you figure out what's the most important set of things to focus on over the next few years as an e-commerce marketer? So I, I've, I, 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 we spend a lot of time talking about this and I think it, the, the e-commerce world is focused on acquisition. Everybody's focused on acquisition. What's my cost of acquisition? What's my average revenue per user? What's this? What's this? What's this? And everything's all about putting things in the top of the funnel all the time. Everybody want more things in the top of the funnel. However, that's great. And what will people have found over the pandemic is they've acquired loads of new customers. All right. What we need to do now, what the e-commerce or aspiring e-commerce professionals need to think about is, well, how can we delight and retain these customers so that I don't have to pay to acquire them again. Mm. And I think a lot of people are missing this because they're just focusing on performance marketing and they may be even paying for the same customer twice. And actually they're not focusing enough on retention. They're not focusing enough on ensuring they've got the right message to the new customers versus a different message to their existing customers across social or across how they're setting up and how are they, is everybody tracked and cooked properly. So I'd say a big, big focus right now needs to be on a quality service because I think the one thing that Amazon has taught us all is if Amazon can want can deliver it tomorrow, you are expected to deliver it tomorrow. Amazon's become the new normal, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it might not make any sense or money, and I think some people, if they are losing money on their first transaction and are aiming for this customer lifetime value, then they need to really focus on CRM. They need to really focus on their first party data and they need to really focus on that overall retention. And then I'd say the other thing we, we work with a lot of our clients on is they need to become obsessive about conversion rate because everybody gets obsessed about traffic but actually, the biggest and most important lever you could pull is optimizing your conversion rate. So if you could double your conversion rate from the same amount of traffic, that's huge. And arguably, it could be achievable if you went from a 2% to 4% or 1% to 2%. But it's going to be a lot harder to double your traffic. So, yeah, those would be the two things I would say is the retention of the new clients you've got, because I completely agree with you. If if we're now 80% online and 20% on the high street, we're not going to go back to 80% on the high street and 20% on the line. It's probably going to be something in the maybe 60, 40, 40, 60. But, and I do still think if it's a blended retail, is giving people the option to showroom and then order online to have it delivered home. I don't want to walk around with all my bags with stuff. 
And that's something that people are already doing in the UK a lot, where you can order in store and just have it delivered home the next day. I, I agree. I think there's some really interesting blended commerce models that, that we're going to see. And it should be a distinct advantage for, for, for retailers if they, have a, if they have a physical presence. And it's, so one, one of the big frustrations for retailers like Best Buy was that they, they, they were a, they were the showroom for Amazon. And, oh, no, yeah, and everybody's in there on their phones. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're price shopping and trying to figure out. And so they've tried to develop some strategies to deal with that, but that's, that's a difficult thing to do, but it's just a reality. And I think you need to sort out how, how to, how to take advantage of the physical plant that you have and, and, build the right kind of experience. I want to go back to also the 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 other point you were bringing up John around the idea of of customer loyalty, customer experience selling to the same people. One of the big challenges that I think marketers have is it's it's fundamentally a a personalization problem in a lot of cases. And personalization starts with segmentation meaning you need to understand your customers, you need to put them into groups or cohorts and then figure out the message and to, to those different segments. And it's funny, I've, I've been, I was involved in personal, personalization technology now 20 years ago and, and it, the technology was there, but the marketers weren't. And, and the, issues, the issue was that the marketers didn't really have the deep understanding of their customers, or even worse, the ability, if they understood them, to have the discipline to build out the the messaging frameworks that are targeted toward those different kinds of prospects. It's funny, Kelsey and I were just talking about that earlier today, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's a product marketing bandwidth challenge in some cases. We know we can target banks versus software companies versus retailers, but it means you need to actually have messages, you need to have uh, references, you need to have all those things that are tuned to the specific target audience that you're dealing with. And of course, the easiest, easiest personalization for you to do is, are you a customer or are you not a customer? And, and, and that's what people really struggle with, in my experience. I think that it, 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 where we were talking to a client, actually, only the other day, and my background, my first proper marketing job uh, was working with a company that specialised in address management. Okay, so we, that sounds a bit strange. And in the UK, we have postcodes. In America, you have zip codes. In the UK, a postcode is like 30 houses. A zip code's a bit bigger. So you have your zip plus four. And if you have your zip plus four, that can tell you who's all the... And we used to work with mail order companies sending out direct mail. And it would mean that their mail order was more likely to arrive. The parcels were less likely to get returned. Their, their brochures would arrive or they could take more bookings in the call center. So it was this software where you typed in your zip code and you brought back an address. And at the time, it was revolutionary. Uh, this is about 20 years ago plus. But what was interesting about that is people would spend a lot of time and effort curating and thinking about the marketing because the cost to put it in the post was quite high. Yeah. Right. So what's happened is because sending an email or sending an SMS or sending a WhatsApp is cheap and people don't spend as much time and effort ensuring the quality of the message and the content is like, oh, well, we'll just send them that. If it doesn't work, we'll just send them something else. If it doesn't work, we'll just keep spamming them to death 
until until they give in. And and I actually think if we almost got some old fashioned direct mail creatives and copywriters and got them into our marketing funnels and sequences that we now have in our CRMs, we'd probably do a lot better. It's back Uh, to your point, John, that everything should be about conversion optimization. And right now, because there is a cost of sending an email that you just highlighted, which is the, the, the cost of the brand erosion that you've created by annoying that person, by sending them too many messages, an irrelevant message, et, et cetera. And so that that is a real cost that you're incurring. And, and you should think about every single one of those as a potential conversion moment. And how how do I figure out, it, it, you're right, it's, it's about, I think one of the biggest underinvested areas in most marketing organizations now is content or product marketing. And, and it is the, the idea of, you know, the, the best marketers that I, I know from a e-commerce marketer folks are, are copywriters because they yeah. can tell an amazing story in four words. And, and that kind of efficiency is wildly valuable. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I think arguably the, the rise of digital marketing has enabled marketers to become lazy because actually you can spend some money on a digital marketing media platform and some results start happening quite quickly. So it's like, well, why should we go over there and spend loads of time thinking of a new idea when we could just go give Google some more money? Yeah, so, and people use that as an, in a slightly different way where you say, I want to run 100 experiments and see what's going to work. But the problem is they never really take it and take in the learnings and stop doing the things that don't work and are annoying to people and, and do that level of refinement. And I think that that discipline, and, and you're right, you, you ought to go go out and hire someone who who was a, a direct uh, a direct marketer from the 1990s. You can find them. They're still around. I, yeah. I bet if you had them go look at your marketing plan, they'd pull whatever remaining hair they have out uh, and say, you got to be kidding me. This is crazy. You know, you're, you're wasting all these opportunities. Yeah, no, completely agree. Completely agree. So, great. Very good. Well, we're we're uh, coming up to the end of our time, John. I know that went pretty fast. So, but but I, I do want to. Kelsey has one more question to ask, but just r- remind our audience how they can learn l- learn more about you and learn about Moto Twenty Five. Yeah, so Modo25 is modo25.com, mo25.com. And I'm John Redman on LinkedIn if people want to connect with me. And uh, yeah, we have our measurement benchmarking tool called Ask Bosco as well. So that's just askbosco.io. And yeah, thank you very much for having me. Great. It was great to have you. And we'll put all those links in the in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and, uh, and want to take a look at the show notes, you can find all that stuff about John and Moto25 and, and Bosco. So I think with that, we have one more question from Kelsey. Yeah, John, this has been a great conversation. I know I'm definitely going to re-listen to all the topics we discussed today, but our favorite question is what advice would you give to those that are CMOs or aspiring to be one someday? That's a good question. So I, I would say it's, if you're an aspiring CMO or CMO, now treat the team around you how you wish your CMO was would have treated you when when you were a junior because one thing I see a lot is suddenly when everybody gets in the big seat and is, is the big boss they suddenly change and they and I think 
the most successful marketing teams we work with, it's a combined team approach. And actually, with these new evolving channels, we need to be empowering some of the younger talent and, and giving them the opportunity. So I suppose it's, yeah, just just think about the people and treat the people how you would have liked to be treated maybe when you came out of grad school. Goes back uh, to the overall. <laughs> it is. It's all about the people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John. This was an excellent conversation. Make sure to follow the next CMO and plan out on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you have any ideas for topics or guests, you can email us at the next CMO at plana.com. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thank you for having me.